Today's guest is here to talk to us about something many of us hear about almost routinely these days, but I'm not sure enough of us understand. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest is Felicia Veal Buxton. She is an industrial sociologist and the founder of Helping Hands Training and Consulting Services. Felicia Veal Buxton, welcome to Mind Talk. Hello, how are you? I am well. Felicia, what is an industrial sociologist? Well, an so- industrial sociologist is a sociologist that spends a majority of his or her time working in an industry. So for me, I spend the majority of my time working with human service organizations, uh, nonprofit organizations, and their staff. Okay. And you are the founder of Helping Hands Training and Consulting Services. What does Helping Hands do? So what we do, we come out to, we actually pride ourselves in bringing trainings to directly to an organization. And we also uh, build trainings directly around organizations' needs. So we come out to nonprofits and um, human service organizations such as uh, churches. We do churches, hospitals, school systems, um, head starts, uh, shelter systems, homeless organizations. We come out and we deliver uh, staff development trainings. And we also consult. Mm-hmm. Now, you heard me say a moment ago that you're going to talk to us about something that many of us hear about, but I'm not sure that enough of us understand, and that is trauma-informed care. It, it's almost the buzz, one of the buzzwords nowadays, but what exactly is trauma-informed care? Uh, if, you, if you break the, the title down, it kind of it's exactly what the title says. Okay, it is uh, tooling or empowering those individuals who work directly with children, families, communities, and individuals who are survivors of trauma. All right, let's back up a half a step and tell us your definition of trauma. So when we say trauma, usually when you think of trauma, the first thing that actually comes to most people's mind is a a physical trauma such as a you got shot or you were in a car accident and you had to go to the emergency room. But in this case, we're talking about emotional traumas. And even when you say that, the first thing that typically comes to mind is military um combat type of trauma, which is, we do deal with that, but in a lot of cases, because we work directly with nonprofit organizations, we're talking about traumas that come from um, poverty, traumas that come from um, early, being introduced early to the penal system, traumas that come from being introduced early to sexual activity and we say to our clients that in human in the human service organ um, industry uh, our clients come to us with their trauma even and it's not something that we can see when they walk to the through the door and often they bring it with them into a setting that is unrelated to uh, the history of their trauma so they're not talking about it and we're not um, 
considering it. But what we train on is the notion that we have to consider it. And even if we're not uh, an organization that works directly in that particular area, we have to know that our client is dealing with that. And so that before we can help them, put them on some kind of track, uh, you know, path to healing or whatever it is that they're trying to get, we have to first acknowledge that they are carrying this baggage. And our job is to try to help them uh, acknowledge it, um, work through it so that they can basically get to some of their life dreams, some of the things that they're really trying to um, get for themselves. You are considered a leading expert in the area of trauma of persons of color. How is trauma among persons of color different from trauma, period? Or is it? Well, <laughs> I'm going to say it is It is different. Um, as a sociologist, I'm interested in duality and understanding that a person has more than... Uh, one role in, that they play in their lives. And in, in terms of trauma, if we look at the African-American uh, female, uh, her history of being a African Amer- an African in America and a female comes with a type of trauma. We then, we then look at it in terms of how does that play out in her life and after we look at how it plays out in her life, we then ask ourselves as human uh, service experts, how then can we help her be able to put uh, her past, her traumas, her past traumas, not necessarily behind her, but where she can uh, focus and deal with them so that she can get beyond them and move forward. So people of color, suffer from multiple layers of trauma, particularly those who live in um, fragile communities. And often those multi-layers of trauma is what keeps people from being able to be successful in their lives. And the thing about trauma, um, because you're living with it, you don't often uh, see it as, you don't know, it becomes a norm. And you don't know that it is a hindrance or that it is something that uh, keeps you from doing some of the things in the life that you want to do. So if there is, for example, an African-American woman and, and a white woman and they're living side by side in a community, would their experience of trauma be different by virtue of their racial and cultural history or no? I would say, well, you said they're, okay, they're living in the same community. But I'm going to say yes, because let's just say they're living in a upper, a middle-class community at this point. Right. Uh, the black, the African-American or the person of color's, uh, how can I say, uh, uh, path to that uh, community I see. would look different. So, again, same trauma, and how do you really say same? I mean, I get that. But. And, 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 
and so for me, it's 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 a little different. So, for example, um, a lot of uh, some African American women grow up in families where, uh, or in communities where uh, African American women are heads in communities, uh, matriarchal types of communities, based on uh, lack of um, presence of uh, African American men, economic presence of Af- African American men. Often um, in a middle, let's say a middle-class community, that is not the experience of the white woman who lives in that community. So, again, their lives would be very different almost from the outset. From the outset. There's even been conversation about, you know, do we say that the African-American Student, we're looking at them as far as trauma, especially in inner cities. Are they coming to school uh, with a traumatized past or with a uh, a pre uh, pre exposure to ongoing trauma, such as uh, trauma from police violence, trauma from gang violence, uh, trauma from domestic violence, trauma from poverty. You know, when we think about trauma, as you said earlier, we tend to think about, if if you will, sort of the in-your-face kind of a trauma. Um, car accident, 9-11, you know, it's kind of in-your-face. You can't avoid it. But what when you start talking about poverty and and economics, those are sort of those are different, I, I would say, in that they feel traumatizing, but there is often not the external awareness that exactly. that they are traumatizing. We're going to take a break, um, but when we come back, you talked about being in, let's say, a work environment where the person brings their trauma to the environment but the environment is different from the trauma they've experienced. So they don't talk about it. Their their colleagues and supervisors and management don't talk about it. So when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about how you even determine that trauma exists if nobody's talking about it. Yes. We're going to take a break, folks, and when we come back, we will continue with Felicia Veal Buxton, who is the founder of Helping Hands Training and Consulting Services located in the Washington, D.C. tri-state area. We'll be right back. Help us understand how it is that uh, one can be in a workplace experiencing their own trauma. They don't know they're bringing it to work. The management doesn't know they're bringing it to work, but there it sits in the middle of work nevertheless. How does that happen? What does it look like? Well, when we say work, um, when I say work, I mean... um, so the majority of our clients, they are uh, non-profit organizations, and they're cli- they are what we call brick-and-mortar buildings. And so and often clients have to come into their building 
for one specific service. So, for instance, a man can walk into a uh, an organization because this organization says they provide, they help you um, with housing. And a man comes in and he's saying, I'm looking for housing. The trauma piece says that often the client will not say that they have a long history of incarceration. Not only do they have a long history of incarceration, they have uh, siblings as well as a parent that has a long history of incarceration as well as drug addiction. What then happens is the organization is ill-prepared to to deal with this particular client because this client is coming for housing but has a plethora of other things that have to be dealt with before the client can even attempt to uh, be a part of a housing program. And, you know, I, I would think for the client who's coming in for housing, the last thing they want to talk about is their history or their family history. They want housing and they want it yesterday. You, I'm so glad you said it because I was going to say, and they want it now. <laughs> our job, you know, our job as human service practitioners is to know that. They can want that. They have the right to want that. But because we are the professionals and we know about trauma-informed care, we know how to then build a program around bringing those questions out. We know how to, to write an assessment plan that allows uh, clients to answer those type of probing questions so that we are able to, uh, we don't want clients to recidivate back into homelessness or back into incarceration or back into multiple uh, pregnancies. So we have to be able to uh, write plans that get those questions out so that we can, and sometimes it's the first time clients are ever even looking at it, we can show them, hey, this might be something that we need to work on with you first. In doing that, even if you can uh, assist the client in understanding how important that is and, and the fact that they really have a right to look at those things and understand how they impact their world, there's so much shame that is often attached to trauma. How do you deal with that? How do you recommend that uh, organizations address the issue not only of the potential shame that a client may experience, but there might be a worker in the organization who's dealing with his or her own set of shame and shame experiences. And you're absolutely right. So one of the things that we do in our training is we talk about how to uh, tactfully begin to deal with trauma-informed care. And one, the first thing that we always say is the building that you have has to reflect your clients. So you have to have visual things around that says we are a healing place. That's the first thing. The, the visuals have to look like clients, and it has to say words that clients can relate to. The second thing is that we, off, we, we suggest that you have reading materials, things that, that clients are not required to take, but that we have available, because we find that Often when we tap on certain subjects, if you give clients the ability to go home on their own personal time and kind of look over it and, and, and figure out what it might be, what you're talking about, often they're able to then um, 
start it becomes it becomes more palatable and then the other thing which i think is actually the most important part is you do have to build a relationship on the onset with a client helping them to understand that um you're there to empower them and you're willing to do that um if it means that you have to have an mou with other organizations you will build a, a team around them and what does mou mean um, a memorandum of understanding. Okay. You referenced poverty and trauma and hunger and trauma. I'm yeah. not sure that as a, a society we tend to associate hunger with trauma. I mean, there's sort of no reason why you wouldn't, but in in the society in which we live, there's right. almost no reason why you would. Yeah. Talk um, about talk, talk about that hunger and trauma. Well, uh, one of the things that we do in our uh, we have a couple of trauma trainers, but when we talk about trauma as far as children, I mean, and this goes for adults too, but uh, children, um, children have to know uh, in order for them to learn and be able to uh, develop wholly in our society, they have to have some constants. One of those things is a roof over their heads. They have to know that they have a place to go every day um, to to lay down and go to sleep. The other thing is food. Uh, they have to know that they're going to eat. When you are uh, afraid uh, that that what you're eating now might be the last time you're going to eat, it, it causes a frenzy. You can't think about anything else other than when is the next time that you're going to be able to eat. A lot of, I, even, I use myself for an example. When I leave out of my house to train, and or I'm also a professor, I'm going to teach. If I've had a long day, the first thing I'm thinking about is I can't wait to get home, get a nice meal, and go to sleep. Um, that's something that I use as, as, a, as energy to keep me going throughout the, the day. But when a person is constantly concerned with when they're going to eat, they cannot function on too much of anything else, especially children. Or if they're going to eat. Or if they're going to eat, which prompts a lot of inner city programs to have that lunch program all throughout the summer because we understand that many of our uh, inner city children, they already live in uh, what we call food deserts, which are areas that have uh, that do not have a market, a full marketplace within walking distance. Uh, they're already living in poverty, and now school is out. So just the thought of not being able to eat is enough to keep a child from being able to even think about tomorrow, let alone their future. You know, there are a number of programs um, that have been deemed as really successful in which the, the staff person has experienced the same trauma as the person they're working with. Mm -hmm. What is your sense of that? Do you run the risk of that? Does the agency run the risk of that staff person being re-traumatized by virtue of doing the work they do? Is there something in particular that the agency should be looking at as far as their staffing is concerned? 
Well, my position on that is a little different, I think, cause than some of my colleagues. I don't feel that you have to have experienced the same trauma. And in fact, I think that a properly trained human service uh, professional can deal with most uh, types of trauma. I I know that in additions, often um, the worker has experienced that that the the addiction trauma. Um, but in other fields, I, I really don't think that it, that that is something that has to happen. What I do believe is important is that. From the very top, meaning um, the CEO, they have to accept the trauma-informed care methodology, meaning that it becomes a culture. It becomes the way that the organization uh, writes their plans, uh, um, that their, their strategic planning is based on it. It becomes their, their entire, uh, it, the whole culture is around trauma-informed care. I think that that is more important than having individual staff who may have had some type of experience in, in a particular trauma area. Gotcha. You created a trauma-informed care course, which is actually a core course uh, for the work that you do at Anne Arundel Community College in Maryland. What are some of the basics of that course? Well, it's an eight-week we it's an eight week hybrid course, meaning that we're going to do twenty. It's twenty percent in class and eighty uh, percent um, online. And what it is, it's a it's a methodology for working with children, adults, and communities. Um, a trauma informed care methodology for working with children, uh, individuals, and communities. And the tra- the uh, course is set up to. Um, we have a human. A, a degree in human human services as well as addictions and um, we a, a veterans counseling and so we designed this uh, trauma informed care to help our students understand uh, what types of traumas they may encounter with their different perspectives their different um, they'll go out and work with different uh, subcultures in their perspective fields. But we want to acknowledge that these are the types of traumas that they will come across. In the course, I make it clear that this is not saying that every person that has experienced trauma will exhibit these behaviors. What it's saying is that these are some types of behaviors that you can begin to look for when you're working with your clients. And if you see them, you can then take a side turn and say, wait, I've been trained in this. Let's kind of, let me try to uh, look in my bag of tricks and see here what we're, what can I do uh, based on the training that I've had in trauma, uh, based on what my organization offers, and based on the organizations that I work with. How can I really help this person move forward? You know, it it sounds like such an important piece of awareness that 
even if this were part of a core training course for executives and management just across the board, that this would be useful for them and working with their staff, not that they're going to be counselors or provide that particular kind of care, but just to be aware of what's potentially going on in the staff and impacting productivity. Exactly. Um, to be trauma informed, it has to be cultural. It has to be. It has to come from the top down because it, it it shows itself in many nuances. So it's not just that we are uh, counseling from a trauma informed perspective. It's it's also our paperwork. It's written from a trauma informed perspective. It means that uh, the goals that we set for clients are set from a trauma informed perspective and not from, you know, some other type of um goals that the organization might be wanting to reach. Gotcha. Felicia, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'd like to hear a little bit more about Helping Hands and how folks can be in touch. Oh, good. Thank you. Felicia Veal Buxton, you heard me refer to you as the founder of Helping Hands Training and Consulting Services. What motivated you to create Helping Hands? Well, I've been in the business for about 25 years, and I've worked in and around Baltimore, D.C. area for 25 years. And um, as a professor of sociology, I saw that there was a way for me to merge both sociology with human services and getting uh, the word out about um, trauma was the thing that actually got me started um, with the business. I really am a advocate of uh, human service practitioners. I understand that what we do often does not yield a big income. But it is an important job. And so for me, the whole goal of helping hands training and consulting really is to empower those people who work with people every day. You know, when when you said that um, uh, human service professionals often don't yield a big income, you know, it's always so interesting that, you know, a sports person who clearly works hard to get what he or she gets, uh, but they make millions, many of them, not all of them, and certainly not the women, but they make millions and millions of dollars, and the people who teach them, not so much. Not so much. And I never want human service professionals to, I know we can get burned out, so my job as a trainer, and I have lots of energy because I really respect us. I know that we are special, and I know that what we do every day changes lives. One of my students said to me, Professor, how can you 
not, you, you know, you're so passionate. How could you not take uh, all these things home with you? And I said, to be able to help people, you can't take their, you can't take the pressure on. Right. And that's why I know we're special. How does one get more information about Helping Hands Training and Consulting Services? Well, we have a website that um, is currently it's up and running, and they can go to the website and um, uh, look at some of the things that we do. We can be reached uh, through the website, and or we can you can send us a, contact us through the Met website, or you can give us a call. Uh, our number is. Uh, 443-579-6835, and our uh, website is um, www.hhtcservices, with an S, dot com. And can you give us that phone number again? Um, the, uh, 443-579-6835. Wonderful. Felicia Veal Buxton of Helping Hands Training and Consulting Services, thank you so much for joining us today and for the passion you bring to the work that you do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners about trauma-informed care and its relevance amongst our clients and its importance amongst our, amongst our uh, colleagues. Absolutely. Folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. And please know that you can download this conversation or any Mind Talk conversation on demand by going to several different places. You can go to mindtalk.org, which is M Y N D T A L K dot O R G. You can go to the Mind Talk app, which is available as an Android and an iOS app. You can go to several different platforms. Check out the MindTalk uh, uh, website, and there on the homepage, it'll let you know which apps you can access. MindTalk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Please remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. (laughs) 